Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the deadliest and strangest shootout of British history. It's Ral Moat. I really love our intro music. I do. Every time I hear it, I love it more. It's a little bit like hillbilly, isn't it? Yeah. Little rockabilly. It's just enough. But like, it's kind of sexy. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like sexy horror train. Yeah. Except, um, why can't we sing it? You're an actual singer in a band. Give me a chance. I reckon I could next yeah, time. I would say that I have grade five music theory and I can sight sing, you know, at, uh, well, I could sight sing at a grade six level. Oh. Yeah. Well, I can't mimic that. Oh. I don't know why. Cool story, bro. How have you been anyway? Um, yeah, good. Had a cold. Um, I apologise in advance if I still sound a bit nasal or like I've got that kind of like sticky, sticky shoes. <laughs> um, sort of like a husky throat still, but I kind of like it. How are you, my friend? I'm great. I have discovered a love for pressure washering and I am potentially going to take it up as a career option in 20 years time. <laughs> I think that. Do you think technology will have moved on in 20 years? I'm hoping not because it's so satisfying. I, I pressure washed my patio and it was, I didn't even think my patio was that dirty, but it's remarkable. There'll be robot pressure washers by probably 2042. But, but how old will I be? I'll be 50, in my 50s. Perfect pressure washing age. Yeah, exactly. So I will be the old school, like, pressure washer so yeah you can get a robot to do it or you could have the old-fashioned way and have me come up to let me pressure wash your patio i'll clean that for you (laughs) yeah i had to be careful though because like there was dirt and moss and bits of grit flying around i got the safety goggles on and everything (laughs) it was brilliant there was a it was a near blinding moment heck i got in the face by a bit of shrapnel right here on my cheekbone. Lord. It was too close for comfort. So I was like, Feel will you get your goggles for me, please? So there you are. There you go. But Professional. I was doing a bit of everything. I was doing the patio and I was like, oh, that chair looks dirty. Oh, the window. Oh, this plant's got a bit of dirt on it. I feel like you probably shouldn't pressure wash windows. That sounds like a really fine. good way to break a window. <laughs> Surely. Well, my windows are fine. Um, I would put a pin in that as a career move. Okay. Um, I fully support you in everything that you do, obviously. Mm. Mm. But, like, my mum just got a robot lawnmower. I saw that on Instagram. Jason Momoa. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been so proud of my mum. She's like, I got... Yes, Darren got a a, a robot lawnmower, and I've named it... What you named it, mum? Jason Momoa. (laughs) That's the best thing you've ever done, mum. Including all of my siblings. That's that's, that's fun. Fabulous. Yeah, well done, man. Well done, Priscilla. So, let's set the scene. It's July 2010 in Northumberland. A couple, a man and a woman, 
They are spending the evening at a party with some mates, um, both having a very lovely time, completely unaware of the horrors that they're about to face. So a couple of streets away, an absolute meathead of a man gets out of a car. He approaches the building and he hides in a bush, waiting. Oh, that's... How sinister is that? Mm -hmm. Okay. When the couple finally walk outside, they come face to face with the man. The woman realises it's her ex-boyfriend. The last time she'd seen him was right before he'd been arrested for assault. And before she has time to say anything to him, he shoots her and her new boyfriend. Ow! She's critically injured. No. And her boyfriend dies. No. Mm-hmm. Then, just a few hours later, the gunman then turns his rage onto the police, critically injuring an officer, and he calls the police to boast about it. You don't want me to kill myself, but I'm going to give you a chance because I am going for officers now. Fucking hell. Hun- so, hunting for officers. For non natives who don't understand the accent he if i have understood that correctly he has just said you want me to kill myself but i'm gonna give you the chance Mm -hmm. i'm coming for police officers Mm -hmm. essentially that wasn't word for word yep the search for the newly released criminal became the biggest news story in the country people were following every move of this and during that week of the manhunt people had their televisions and their radios switched on round the clock. The manhunt ends in a dramatic standoff with the police, aired live on television as the nation anxiously waits to see what will happen when the gunman turns the weapon on himself. That's mad. He wanted to be iconic, he wanted to be infamous, he wanted to go out with a bang and not a whimper. So, let's go back to the start. Raoul Moat was born on June 17th, 1973, in Gateshead, in the northeast of England. He was raised mostly by his grandma. Um, and as you might know, the north was known for its mining, shipbuilding and lots of industry. Like that's, I, I suppose that's where like lots of things were made. You know, Productive. It was productive. It was productive and, but it was culture. quite like, it was hard labour and it was where a lot of people in the north were employed by those industries. Um, But during the 70s and the 80s, the jobs started to phase out and a lot of the male population were without jobs. Um, Some blame Margaret Thatcher. Thatcherism, I looked into that. that's before our time. Yeah. So there was a bit of a, a depression, I suppose, like lots of people were out of work. So it... It was going to be hard for Raoul to find work and to find a purpose. He did, however, love the gym. Many teenagers go through a lot of changes, particularly at momentous points in their teenage years. When Moat was 16, he left school and there were some changes in him around about that time. So he became quite fixated on bodybuilding. And this is something that you often find with young working class lads in an area where the prospects of those those traditional kind of tough men's jobs are few and far between. They look to other ways to to become men, to make themselves visibly masculine. And I think that was what Moat was doing. Former criminal psychologist Chris Carter and Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson say that Raoul did more than just spend time at the gym to gain muscle. 
When you see the results, then in, in anything, you, you get more, oh wow, this is working. So then he went in more and more, and then he started getting to steroids. He'd obviously decided to express himself as the big fella around town. He was six foot three, 17 stone, and liked this idea of being a large, well-built muscle bodybuilder. And he clearly used a lot of steroids. And people who were close to him talked time and time again about just what a terrible temper he'd got. Moat was somebody who has what I would describe as poor behavioural control. So somebody who flies off the handle quite easily, somebody who's quite readily aggravated. And if you throw steroids into the mix, you, you get what people often refer to as roid rage, you know, a real inability to control your temper. And it increases the levels of testosterone in the body. So when somebody has a predilection towards aggression, and then you add that on top of it, you've got a really toxic mix. One would say that he was built like a brick shithouse. He sounds like a tank. Look at him. Fuck. Yeah. Um, okay, so Helen is showing me a picture uh, of Raul. I don't really know. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, he's hench. He's hench. He's stacked. He's got the typical sort of that uh, physique, like bodybuilder's physique, uh, mm. quite triangular on the top. But his face is a different colour to his body. It's gone, screen's gone blank now. Um, but that will be burned in my eyes for a little while anyway. Um, Look it's at this quite, picture. He obviously, oh. God, his traps are intense. Um, he looks like an angry, angry man. He does. His, his face his, his face is hard. Yeah. He, um, I'm already terrified. Yeah, he looks quite frightening. Yeah, he's not like the he's not someone you want to get on the wrong side of, let's put it that way. You can tell from those poses that he is very confident in himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I just saw on on here it's this is a Daily Mail article saying that he ate when he was on the run, he ate mice, dead mice for protein. I don't know. Well, I'd hope they were dead. Yeah. Crass, crazy. Anyway, by day he worked in agriculture and then by night he was a doorman on a pub. He was known by the police for being a bit of a bad man, domestic abuse, violence, reports from partners. And at the age of 32, he was caught by the police carrying a knuckle duster and a samurai sword. OK, you don't just carry those things casually, do you? You carry those with intent to do harm, don't mm -hmm. you? So he's not just a brick shithouse. He's a, a shit person. Yeah is where we're at. Yeah. He had a long list of past girlfriends and by the time he was 37, he'd had several children with different partners. And one of these women was uh, a lady called Samantha. They'd been on and off for about six years and they had a daughter together. Well, the relationship between Samantha and Moat was an incredibly controlling one. It's one that I classify as coercively controlling. So Moat believed that Samantha was his possession. He was in control, he decided what happened, and she basically had to suck it up and get on with it. So it was his rules. Um, everything was, was focused around him. And he would control everything. He would control her movements, um, what she could buy and could not buy, what she did, who she talked to on the phone. So obviously Samantha would probably feel like completely controlled. She didn't have the right to do anything. 
You often find in relationships like this, women are kind of treading on eggshells, trying not to upset their abusive partner. But at the same time, it's very, very difficult for them to leave. Often looking from the outside, we say, well, why are you staying in this relationship? And often it's to keep themselves safe because they know that if they were to leave, they'd put themselves in quite a significant amount of danger. So a really sad position for Samantha to be in. Like she's in this abusive relationship with him and she's terrified to leave because... Look at the look at the fucking state of him. Like he is a scary man. I learned about coercive control recently. Right. And um coercive control actually only became a legal crime, sort of legally recognised as abuse, prosecutable mm-hmm. um by law, I think in two thousand and fifteen. So what does it actually What's the definition of coercive control? So coercive control is an act or pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish or frighten their victim. So it's not necessarily, it's not just physical abuse, it's not just emotional abuse, it is using all aspects of um, themselves, humiliation, intimidation, as well as the threats and acts of physical violence. So it doesn't necessarily have to be subjectively in a romantic relationship. It could be in any no, type of relationship. You could coercively control um, sort of... A friend. A, any vulnerable person, yeah, really. Or, or an employee. Or anyone, yeah, anyone vulnerable. And I think it's important that that kind of intimidation and humiliation... Mm-hmm. You have to, you can't just blame roid rage on that. No. Like no. that's, and that's something that takes a long time that, well, it doesn't take as long as you think, to be fair, to have a long lasting effect, mm-hmm. but it's something that is employed over time yep. to gain that control. And that is, I, I think that's important. So by 2010, she would, she'd actually became desperate to leave him and she got an opportunity to do so when he was put in prison for assaulting one of his family members. He was sentenced to 16 weeks at Durham prison. So she was out of there, but it only made him worse. I am not a psychologist, but it was clear to me that Moat was a bit of a psychopath. He was always willing to blame others for everything that he did wrong. Everybody else was responsible. The social services were wrong. His legal team were wrong because they gave him bad advice and the police were picking on him. He's always laying the blame at somebody else's door because he doesn't think that he can do anything wrong and that's a classic trait of somebody who's narcissistic. Raoul Moat was safely locked away and he was angry. He was angry and holding a colossal grudge and wanted revenge on everyone he thought had wronged him. One place he'd fixated his anger was the fact that he could no longer control Samantha as he was behind bars. Moat being in prison had a significant impact on his relationship with Samantha. For a man like Moat, it's very, very important to be in control all of the time, especially in terms of your personal relationships. When he's removed from that domestic picture, he has to try really hard to to keep control. So he's on the phone to Samantha quite a lot. He has one of his friends essentially stalking her and checking what she's up to. She was probably scared of him. You'd be scared if you have, you know, a man that big saying, I am the man, and if you don't do what I tell you, you know, you're going to get hurt or something. So she didn't know how to escape. So him being put in prison to her was like, 
know, something helped her out here. No, she finally was away from him. But the problem was, Sam knew he was coming back. In his mind, the relationship wasn't over. Uh, in his mind, they were going to reconcile, but she didn't uh, have that plan at all. And, uh, and, and the, the sort of straw that appears to have broken the camel's back was her announcing the fact that she was in a new relationship with uh, Christopher Brown. So she was free. She was free of this terrible relationship. Um, and she met this lovely man called Chris. Um, Christopher Brown was a 29-year-old karate instructor. They met in June 2010, just a few months after Raoul had been sent to prison. So while Raoul was in prison, she was finally able to breathe. Except, obviously, reality would hit that, like, he wasn't going to be in prison forever. And at some point, she was going to have to face him. And that's going to feel horrible, isn't it? 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. Is not a long time. No, that's four months, essentially. Four four months. Yeah, which for a narcissist is no... Well, it's not... I don't... Can you truly rehabilitate a narcissist who doesn't believe they've done anything wrong? But four weeks certainly isn't going to do much... No. ...to rehabilitate someone, is it? He's gone in there with the belief that they're still in a relationship. Like, they'd been together, essentially, for six years. He gets sent to prison and, like he's just going to assume that they're going to stay together and they're going to continue when he gets out. But this this was her get-out clause. This was like, okay, cool, he's gone, I'm finally free. And she was probably over it before it was over. Like, she's ready to move on and meet someone else. But she's got that anxiety that he's going to be out soon. So because she's afraid and she's trying to protect herself, Samantha told Raoul that her new boyfriend was a police officer Uh, And this is what Sally Brown, Chris's mum, had to say. Christopher was never a police officer, never. He was a karate instructor. Um, Never even thought of joining the police force. So I think she was just trying to back Mo off. So I think that must be the only reason she told him that. She lied to Mo because she was afraid of Mo. And she knew that when he came out, he would have gone to her and to the new boyfriend. So she started saying that, he was a police officer, because that wouldn't intimidate people. She also said that he was a karate instructor, a black belt in karate. But the news of her new police officer boyfriend didn't have the effect that she wanted. Periods of separation are a really high-risk time for people who've just come out of an abusive relationship because the abuser has essentially lost control at this point in time. The victim has taken some power back and and has some some authority now over their own lives, and the abuser hates that, and they're going to resort to quite drastic measures to get that control back. So the only thing he had to look forward to is going back to Sam, to the person he loved, and then she took that away from him. Right. And that would just like completely bring his anger to surface like crazy. There's no doubt at all that that those conversations while Moat was in Durham prison were the blue touch papers that ignited the bonfire that became Raoul Moat. As was like previously said, he probably wasn't expecting to be broken up with whilst he was in prison and for her to move on. I think, like, you say that, but it's not like a, oh, she's my girlfriend. Um, It's, I think, from an abuser's point of view, Mm. he, it 
and a narcissist, it it's not that he wouldn't expect to be broken up with. It wouldn't occur to him that his control, like she's his. Mm. I don't think he, I think at that point when they get to a certain, I can't, I think coercive control for me personally is, is just, it's so, it's just so abysmal. Mm. Right. And so I think, and I just think you have to be a really dreadful person to go to those lengths yeah. with somebody that you are supposed to love and care for. Mm-hmm. And I think that it it's <clears throat> no, it just wouldn't occur to him that somebody, that she would do anything other than sit there patiently and wait for him to come back and control. Because in his mind, he's doing her a favour. He That's what he needs, that she needs that. She needs him. Because he was so angry and fucked off by the whole situation he got uh, two of his friends to keep an eye on the couple and it escalated because Raoul decided in prison that he was going to kill Christopher as soon as he was released and he didn't waste any time to act on his plan the way in which Mo planned this was quite meticulous he took steps to try and identify the, the, the karate instructor, i.e. Christopher, by making phone calls to to health centres, to karate clubs, to um, to the extent that he actually drove around the routes that they took on the fatal night. Uh, they actually had a, 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 a dry run, if you like, on the Thursday night. So they were acting almost like investigators, stalking, spying, trying to figure out who this Christopher guy was, planning out, essentially the assassination of him that is so frightening because imagine like just living your life normally as well not knowing that that is happening Mm -hmm. on friday july 2nd staff at the prison warned the police that raul might pose a risk to samantha but they didn't do anything about it so later that night carl his friend raul's friend drove raul to nearby gateshead where they knew samantha and her new boyfriend were at a party Mot was dropped off quite near the address that Samantha and Christopher were visiting and he was able to walk in there and hide himself uh, underneath the front window next to the front door where he was able to listen because it was a July night, the window was open, it was warm. He could hear people talking and, and saying things and he picked up on things that were being said about him or things that he perceived to be about him and he started texting his friend Ness and, and expressing his anger and frustration at what he was hearing. This is going on, it's really annoying me. He's essentially venting and this is something that you see narcissistic people do quite a lot. They want an audience for their complaints and their rants. They want validation, they want other people to agree with them and say, yeah, you're completely reasonable. So Mo is laying out the front of the house, waiting, hiding in a bush and he's listening to the party. And he's like, yeah, they're definitely here because the windows are open. It's a summer's day, summer's evening, and he knows that they're in there. And um, Samantha and Chris begin to leave late at night, and out comes Mo. With a sawn-off shotgun, Mm. he shoots Chris. Chris starts to run away. He shoots him again, which knocks Chris to the floor. And then... He stands over Chris with his sawn-off shotgun, close range, shoots him again. Fuck's sake. That is some fucking brutal shit. 
And just and Sam had to watch that. Yep. Oh, that's horrible. To create maximum damage, he had actually loaded his shotgun with lead fishing weights. Shit. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains. They're bigger, they're heavier, they do more damage. They're going to make those discharges more lethal. Certainly with a close-range discharge of a shotgun, even with small pellets, you're going to get a large mass going into the body that's going to lacerate major organs, major blood vessels, very likely to be fatal. So even a sawn-off shotgun on its own, in close range, like you said, would cause maximum damage, but he had to just go that extra mile just to make sure that he was causing as much damage as possible, which is so messed up. Samantha runs into the house to seek refuge um, and from the outside he sees her in the living room and he shoots at her through the window, shatters the window and it hits her in the abdomen. Oh God. So he had no idea if he'd killed Samantha or not but he didn't care. So after firing into the house he just casually walks away, gun in hand, don't give a shit. Well, most people, when they commit a murder, they are absolutely horrified at what they've done. They can't quite believe that the magnitude of it, they often go into a state of of shock and and literally don't know what they're doing afterwards. But Moat was very calm, he was very calculated. He phoned his friend, he said, I'm full of beans. And the reason for that was because he thought he'd restored the natural order of things. He felt entitled to carry out those shootings. For him, it seemed to have been a bit like mission accomplished. And and he, and he seemed quite calm and pleased with himself. That makes me so mad because it's like he was in prison. He didn't have direct control of her. He found out this news about her with a new partner. She'd left. She's got a new partner. The rage was building up whilst he was locked away. And I feel that he this is, like I said, restoring the natural order of things, apparently. But this is him having that control once more. He's ended this man's life and he's injured her again like critically injured her again and it it's so fucking annoying because he's walking away all smug because he feels like he's he's scratched an itch he's done it he's got the one he's got the once over on her again he's he's in the control he's in the driver's seat because he's caused that damage yeah like a victory yeah so this feeling didn't last long Raoul Moe had killed Christopher Brown and critically injured Samantha in front of multiple witnesses, most of whom recognised him. So, stupid thing to do, but he didn't care. This was just him acting the way that he wanted to act. And the police were immediately on the hunt. And Raoul had already left the police a strange piece of evidence and he'd left them a letter saying, pay for what you've done. He had a 49-page letter that he'd written outlining his complaints about various things. And you often see this with people who are narcissistic. When they have a complaint, when they're angry about something, it's not enough for them to just make a concise statement and, and sum it up neatly. They will go on and on and on. So in the letters, he wrote... Then this is quoted from this book, or in his letter. Um, They've hunted me years... Now it's my turn. The public need not fear me, but the police should, as I won't stop until I'm dead. They took it all from me, my kids, my freedom, house, then Sam. Where could I go from there? Basically, he's pissed off because the police were always on his back. And also, if he wasn't put in prison, he might still be with Samantha. 
once again, none of this is his fault. There's obviously nothing else he could do but go on a rampage against the police because it's all their fault. He's just a man who is who doesn't deserve this. This is a very delusional man, My isn't it? My God. Yeah. How full of yourself do you have to be? Yeah. Um, so this is where it gets sad. And I will warn you. I'm already emotional, actually. Um, am I about to cry? You might do. Okay. So as Raoul Mote began his time on the run, police pay a visit to Sally Brown, who's Chris's mum, to tell her the, the news. It was our local police that came round to me. They just said that there'd been an incident and that Christopher was dead. But then um, I had the family liaison officer from Newcastle on the phone and they didn't tell me too much over the phone. I think it was a case of I wasn't listening anyway. All I heard was, your son's dead. That was it. It's You seem to sort of cut everything else off. And when, it, when you're told something like this, you, I think your body and your brain just goes into... Um, how can I describe it? You're hearing people, they're talking to you. And at the time I was at home, I was listening to these people on the phone and I was talking to the police officers at the house with me. But I could also hear my daughter screaming in the background. She's absolutely gone hysterical. He was a lad, he was a typical little boy. He was just very happy, laughing all the time. And he would help anybody if he could. He wouldn't let anyone get hurt. He was just a nice lad. But then I'm biased, I suppose. Because he's my boy. <laughs> when you lose one of your children, you just can't describe it. Can't describe it. It's horrendous. It's not really much to say to that, is it? No. Like, she sounds like a person who, like a really loving mum. It's just unfortunate for and Chris, really, that he he started dating a woman who... Well, no, because he sounds like the exact kind of person that she needed. That's exact. No, but I know it's exactly what yeah. she needed. But it's just, it's, a, it's such a shit thing that this family have lost their son, their brother, because... Of a really angry man that just, yeah, yeah just, just, that's just not okay. So Raoul was still at large and his hatred towards the police was only rising and his, his hostility was turning into a vendetta and he was determined for the police to know who they were really dealing with. So in the early hours of Sunday, July 4th, after being in, on the run for 24 hours, he dialed 999. Now listen to this, it's, it's unbelievable. This is the gunman from Berkeley last night. Uh, my name is Raoul Mote. What I'm phoning about is to tell you exactly why I've done what I've done, right? Now, my girlfriend has been having an affair behind my back with one of your officers, this gentleman that I shot last night, the Claudia instructor, right? Now, you, you bastards have been on to me, right, for years. He's a hassledist, harassed he has just won't leave us alone. You wanted me to do myself in, and I was going to do it. Until I found out about him properly and what was going on. And as soon as I found out, I thought, nah, you've had too much from me. You've had too much from me. You'll get your chance to kill us, right? You'll get your chance to kill us. No, okay? we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. You don't want me to kill myself, but I'm going to give you a chance because I am going for officers now. He's taking this whole thing personally. Like the police as a whole are against him. 
because they put him in prison. They're always on his case. Supposedly one of their own is taking his girlfriend and he's now like, you have got it. You've all got it in for me. And now it's my turn to go at war with you. I'm coming for you. He had no intention from hiding from the police. After making the 909 call, Raul took his vengeance one step further. A friend, Karam, had picked Raul up and was driving him around because they were now actively hunting for police officers. Then, just 12 minutes after making that initial 909 call, he'd spotted a police car sitting on a roundabout. He went up to the car tapped on the window. When the police officer turned to look at him, shot him in the face. Fuck's sake. He shot him in the face. The policeman, like, collapsed into the footwell and he shot him again. Oh, my God. He saw that as a personal victory. He's on the hunt for police. Miraculously, though, David Rathband, which was the name of the police officer that he shot, he didn't die, which was a miracle. However, he did lose his eyesight completely. (sighs) Yeah. So Raoul made another 99 call. He was determined to make sure that the police knew it was him who shot the officer. Within maybe an hour of that incident, Mort basically asked Northumbria police, do you believe me now? I've just downed one of your guys and just remind colleagues in Northumbria that I'm coming to get you. And that was a big, big game, game changer in this manhunt. Within 24 hours, Policeman David Rathband had been shot in the face. A rare occurrence for a policeman to be shot in Britain. That really ramped up the story. The media poured into the northeast very quickly. It became an unprecedented manhunt over that long, hot July week up in the northeast of England. And the media interest was intense. People had their televisions and their radios switched on round the clock. Do you think it's his intention to kill as many police officers or or cause damage to as many police officers to the point where they finally kill him? Absolutely. Like, is that his goal? He's already th- said that. Yeah, he wants to take down as many as he can before they get him. And the fact that he knocked on David's window before shooting him, that's another level because he wanted this guy to see him yeah. before he shot him. Otherwise, if his intention was purely just to do damage, he'd have just, shot him. just shoot him yeah. and move on to... Bang, onto the next, Grand Theft Auto, yeah? But instead, he wants this man to look at him. He wants the police to know that it's him. So arrogant. It's not just the phone calls. He wants this guy to have seen that it was him. With his behaviour becoming increasingly erratic, the authorities were warning the public not to approach him. Um, Former senior investigating officer Jim Napier and Jeremy Thompson say that the manhunt for Raoul was like none the public had ever seen before. It was an operation that was supported by police forces from across the country. Colleagues from London, Liverpool, Manchester. There was equipment sent from Northern Ireland. There was a huge response to this because day-to-day policing had to continue in the Northumbria police area. They had to be there in numbers and they had to have the right equipment. They had to be armed. It was on an epic scale. They had not only got 160 armed officers, but also they'd got special armoured vehicles. They'd got specially trained tracker dogs. They'd got helicopters up. And they'd even got an RAF jet up there running reconnaissance missions over that whole area. It was an extraordinary reaction to 
what they knew at the time to be perhaps no more than one man with a gun on the loose. An RAF jet. That's mad. I'm glad he specified that it was for reconnaissance because like, I was like, what are they going to do? Just like missile him out of existence? <laughs> what? It's just, just for reconnaissance, it's fine. This is some serious search shit, though. Like, I'm glad they, they are. Did, yeah. They're like, you want more, buddy? We'll give you fucking more. We'll get the RAF out here. We've got 160 armed officers. We've got dogs. I hope he is shitting his pants. I hope at this point he was shitting his pants. Because you, is he? You don't think he was? No. Oh, okay. He did go, he did, I don't think he has the capacity to be shit scared to be afraid of anyone. He did go off the radar, though. So after he, he blinded... PC Rathband. On Sunday the 4th, they lost him. Interesting. Two shooting incidents in 24 hours and then gone. No more phone calls, no more messages. He just vanished into thin air. We did not know where he was. He had come down, caused all that damage and then disappeared. But on July 6th, the car that Raoul had been in when he shot PC Rathband was found abandoned in the small town of Rothbury, which is 30 miles north of Newcastle. So the police set up a two-mile exclusion zone and urged residents to stay indoors. The hunt suddenly started to focus on a very pretty market town called Rothbury, right on the edge of the Northumberland National Park, a beautiful little town on the Coquit River, surrounded by glorious but pretty remote countryside that presumably Moat knew pretty well and felt that he could steer clear of the police around there and whatever game he had in mind, whatever he was doing to taunt the police at the time or to evade the police, he felt it was his best bet. There was still no sign of him, but the police had found an abandoned campsite in Rothbury along with a voice recorder with files of him complaining about how unhappy he was with the media reports about his private life. Oh, my God. Because he was so upset with what people had been saying about him, what the media were saying about him, he started making threats at the general public. So, yeah, how's about don't be ragey, don't be a ragey killing bastard, and then people won't talk shit about you. Yeah, maybe don't shoot a bunch of people and blind a guy if you uh, don't want to be talked shit about. Mm-hmm. In it on Wednesday, July seventh, two thousand and ten, police found yet another letter in a tent. Was this with the mice he'd been eating? <laughs> oh my god! It was addressed to his ex-girlfriend Samantha. Detectives knew Raoul must be somewhere nearby, but still didn't know exactly where. They were now offering ten thousand pounds to anyone that had any information that would lead to his capture. The media interest had intensified and they were now broadcasting this 24 hours a day. By Thursday, July 8th, Raoul had been on the run for five days, but the police had finally made a breakthrough. It's one of the most curious twists in this whole story that at one stage, a few days into the manhunt, police were telling us they believed that Moat was holding two hostages. But then, strangely, this story twisted round. The next thing we hear is that the police have arrested two men, Ness and a one, who they now tell us they believe were friends 
and aiders and abettors of the runaway man, Raoul Moat. Within 24 hours, he'd gone from two hostages to two men arrested, believed to have some involvement in Moat's escape and perhaps even the shootings itself. The arrest of Raoul's accomplices, a 26-year-old Carl Ness and 23-year-old Karam Awan, did little to tear public interest away from the manhunt around Rothbury. By now, the media had been issued with a news blackout. Not a complete one, but they did get the hint that they should probably stop talking about his personal life as, you know, because he was unhappy about it and it was just making him angrier so i thought okay let's let's tone that down because we're just aggravating him we're making it worse raul's time in the spotlight was running out on friday july 9th a local resident spotted a man she believed to be raul no walking next to the river in rothbury so the police went down to investigate and it was him and as soon as he saw the police he sunk to his knees he held a shotgun up to his chin and he just sat there Some of those images will live with me forever. I can remember them vividly, live, constantly going back to seeing what was happening, moat on his knees. That riverbank is the abiding image of Raoul Moat in almost everybody's mind. On the evening of Friday, July 9th, the nation was glued to their television sets as the drama unfolded. The police were dealing with a man who was erratic, armed and extremely dangerous. We had police negotiators who were there on the scene, face to face, who spent the next six hours or so speaking to him and trying to persuade him that the right thing to do was put the gun down and surrender himself to custody. He wasn't giving himself up and the media tension only continued to grow, even reaching out to celebrities. Almost as the manhunt came to its dramatic and fatal climax, we got the almost bizarre scene of Gaza, Paul Gascoigne, famous England footballer, turning up in his dressing gown, claiming to know Raoul Moat and offering Moat chicken and lager if he gave himself up. Didn't come to anything. The police just asked Gaza to politely leave the town and had nothing more to do with it. I'm just picturing a footballer in his dressing gown, in his silky robe. It wasn't. It was a full-on robe. Like, it wasn't silky. It was Was like a proper, you know, like, period dressing gown. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, I think we should probably caveat that I don't think Paul Gascoigne was in the best state of mental health himself at this point in time. Really? I seem to remember he's had a lot of issues with um, with alcohol. I think he also turned up with a fishing rod as well, if I remember correctly. Oh. Yeah, it was chicken. And um, although he now he later claims he'd had 14 lines of cocaine. Oh, my God. So it's actually a miracle he turned up alive. I think in his head he was going to turn up, have a lovely chat with Raoul, they'd eat some chicken and have a fish and just sort it out. Yeah, man to man. Man to man. Let's have a chat. But he was just coked off his face. I mean, his intentions were good. It also, in the picture here, looks like he's got like a a cheese top tear and share bread, which looks quite nice. Show it. It's mad. (laughs) It's mad. 
Um, but yeah, I think he was actually in a really vulnerable place, Paul Gascoigne, and he was just trying to do something nice. Oh. But um, it was, mm. it's actually, it probably isn't a, a strong moment for him either. Paul's attempts failed. Raoul stayed put with the gun against his chin. It was an incredibly long and tense night. Darkness fell. We really could see very little of what was going on. We could just see the outlines of the police cordon. And the night dragged on after midnight into the small hours. And it was around one o'clock in the morning when there was a dramatic series of events. Hard to make out. It was confused. It was dark. It was very difficult to know exactly what the sequence of events were. There had been one last attempt to capture Raoul. Police decided to try and use a taser on the 37-year-old. They were determined to take him alive. On this occasion, the tasers that were used were long tasers, like shotgun-style tasers, uh, which hadn't yet been approved for use by the police. When you're in a mindset and a determination to uh, arrest somebody, to call them to account for the crimes that they've committed in the safest possible way, then it was right and proper that it was given a try. Uh, it didn't work. At approximately 1.15am on Sunday, July 10th, the sound of a shotgun rang through the air. Raoul Moat had taken his own life. I don't think the police had any chance of talking Raoul Moat down. He wanted to be iconic, he wanted to be infamous, he wanted to go out with a bang and not a whimper. The seven-day manhunt and a six-hour standoff had finally come to a dramatic conclusion. He clearly had decided that he didn't want to be taken captive, he didn't want another sentence in jail again. This was it, this was his final stand. This was the moment he decided to pack up, give up, not be taken again. He probably didn't want to be taken by the police because it would have been their victory. He went at war with the police and the last thing that he would want is for them to win. Mm. And so if he does it, they had they had no say in it. It's a shame. I think it's a shame for the victims like and their families yeah. that he didn't have to atone. With Raoul dead, police could focus their attention on those who aided him during the seven days. At a trial at Newcastle Crown Court in March 2011, Raoul's two accomplices, 26-year-old Carl Ness and 23-year-old Karam Awan, were convicted of conspiracy to murder, attempted murder and armed robbery. Karam was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years and Carl was further convicted of murder and a firearms offence and was sentenced to 40 years. The horrors of this tragic case didn't end with the death of Raoul Moat. Heartbreakingly, in February 2012, PC David Ruffband took his own life. He was unable to cope with his blindness since the shooting. His colleagues at Northumbria Police believed that 44-year-old David had become Moat's second victim. Oh, that's so horrible. Oh, that's horrible. That's really sad. David's involvement in this case, you know, he was a police officer doing his job uh, in uniform to the best of his ability and without warning, he suffered horrific injuries that changed his life and, in my view, 
ultimately led to his death. And I will always hold Raoul Moat responsible for killing David Rathbun. These people do these things to, and they don't think about the consequences of the people that they leave behind. They said it would get easier, but no, it gets harder. Everybody talks about the Raoul Moat case. This started as the Christopher Brown murder inquiry. My team that investigated it, it continued to be the Christopher Brown murder inquiry. The only thing he did wrong was he fell for a girl who Moat believed was his possession, and he would use any force to deal with that, and he did. Um, and we should never forget that Christopher was the first victim here. Christopher was a very happy-go-lucky, fun-loving person. He was a good son, he was a good friend to his friends, a good brother to his sister. He's never out of our thoughts. He's... I just miss him so much. That was Raoul Moat. Sad. Mm. Yeah. That's actually... Like, it's easy enough to, like, to only remember Gaza and his chicken and, like, lol. The lol of that. Um, which, actually, when you sort of look into it, is not a lol at all, because that's just another... The sad in itself. Another... Of his, yeah. The state that he was in. Do you feel a little bit like ultimately like he did get away with it? Because Yeah, I do. It makes me There was no justice in this. No. And that's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Enough about him. He doesn't deserve any more no. of our time. No. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're visiting the infamous American serial killer. It's the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. 